The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Fighting for Love. This show will help you turn conflict into collaboration in all your relationships. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank, an attorney mediator since 1985. She's a mediator for the Orange County Superior Court Civil Mediation Panel. Mari's a professor of negotiations and conflict management and has been a certified state bar trainer for over 25 years. To learn more about the show and our great guests, please visit conflicthealing.com. Mari, what's your show about this morning? Today, I am so excited to bring you a fabulous, fabulous researcher, writer, physician. He walks on water. He's a Renaissance man, and he is coming to us from Pennsylvania. Let me tell you a little bit about Andrew Newberg and of many of you know that you've seen Mark Waldman on our show and Mark and Andrew in, I'm going to call him Andy because that's what he calls you, um, Andy. And they, I read them every month. Uh, they do a wonderful column in Science and Mind magazine. And of course, I've read so many of their books. One of my very favorites, here's Words Can Change Your Brain how God changes your brain, how enlightenment changes your brain. He's done this amazing, amazing research. So let me tell you a little bit about him. And I just want to mention his new book, which I just got. I haven't had a chance to read it, but I will. It's called Neurotheology, How Science Can Enlighten Us About Spirituality by Andrew Newberg, MD. So, you know, you don't think of, of physicians uh, being into this kind of, uh, you know, the, the mix of uh, spirituality and religion and psychology, you always think about them as technology and science. And the beautiful thing about Andy is he blends everything together. And he's looking to, to have this under one umbrella so that it has credibility and we can understand what's happening in the brain because we have these amazing brains. So let me read a little bit about Andy because he has an incredible background. He's currently the research director at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson University and Hospital in Philadelphia. He's a professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences with a secondary appointment also in the Department of Radiology. And he's an adjunct professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. He's board certified in internal medicine and nuclear medicine. And he's been particularly interested and involved in the study of mystical and religious experiences, a field that he refers to as neurotheology. He's published over 250 peer-reviewed articles, and he has published 10 books, 
which have been translated into 16 different languages. He was listed as one of the 30 most influential neuroscientists alive today. And I'm just so thrilled to have him. You can find out more about him at conflicthealing.com where we link to his website. And that is Andrew, A-N-D-R-E-W, Newberg, N-E-W-B-E-R-G.com. So thank you so much, Andy, for coming on. I've, I've been to one of your groupies for a long time and you didn't even know it. Well, thank you. I'm, it's always good to have a groupie. And <laughs> but thank you. I'm very excited to be here and, and be able to talk to you and share uh, ideas with you. Yeah. So um, let's talk about what is neurotheology? Well, I think the simplest uh, definition of neurotheology is that it's a field of study. It's an emerging field of study that seeks to understand the relationship between our brain and our religious and spiritual selves. That's the, that's the simplest definition. But uh, I like to expand a few points about that. And one thing I like to say is that it's really, it's a two-way street, meaning that it is not just neuroscience looking at religion or trying to you know, explain away religion. It's also not religion and theology trying to kind of pigeonhole science in a certain way, but it's really uh, being able to use science and religion together, or science and spirituality together to help us understand ourselves as human beings and how we relate to the world around us and how, how we ultimately understand who we are. Uh, as human beings. So that to me is very important. And then the other thing I always like to add in here is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of different possibilities uh, that could have been chosen. Uh, you could have had bio religion or neurospirituality. And, um, you know, so, so part of it names. is, yeah, they're all good. I, you know, for, for, for better or for worse, neurotheology seems to be the one that has stuck. And, and I think it works, but uh, it works if we keep in mind uh, two other points, which is that uh, the neuro side and the theology side both have to be greatly expanded. And what I mean by that is that uh, on one hand, the neuro side is not just neuroscience, but it can include medicine. Uh, it can include certainly neuroimaging. It could include psychology, anthropology, all the ways in which we kind of get at our brain and mind. Uh, and then on the other side is the theology side, which uh, you know, theology is a specific discipline trying to look analytically at a given religious tradition. Um, but, and we can talk about theological concepts as well, but, but it also has to be greatly expanded to include practices like meditation and prayer, uh, various experiences like mystical experiences, near-death experiences, and so forth. Uh, the, the nature of human beliefs, religious and spiritual beliefs, and where they come from. So it's, it's all the things that go into that religious and spiritual side. It can include things like free will and morality and, and many other philosophical co uh, questions as well. So I think if you kind of keep in, in mind that it's a two-way street and that the, the, the two sides of the street are very big, um, then neurotheology really works as a, as a concept. And, and to me, it's a very exciting field. I've been doing this research for the last uh, 25 to 30 years. Uh, Mark Waldman and I have been on our, on our own journey together for about, uh, I guess, getting close to about 20 years. And, um, and so it's, you know, and, and we've really just scratched the surface. There's just so much for us yet, yet to learn. And, and so you're going to have to tell me how you've evolved because I read how God changes your brain. And then I read, you know, how enlightenment changes your brain. And, and so this is, you know, this is kind of your evolution, right? And so, how, I mean, I saw what happens. How does you know, all this change our brain when we, you know, I, I was telling you before we started that I've been a meditator 
oh my God, for almost 50 years. And, you know, I went for times when I wasn't doing, I started out, you know, twice a day. I was really having these transcendental, transcendent experiences. And, you know, now I do it once a day and it really helps me to stay calm. Um, but how, how does this kind of stuff change your brain? <laughs> well, it's a great question. You know, uh, we have done, uh, we've scanned people's brains, probably about four or 500 people doing all different kinds of practices from every different tradition. And, and I think there's a couple of big answers to that question. Um, you know, one of the important answers to the question is, is that there isn't just one part of our brain, you know, there is that, that turns on when we are religious or spiritual. So there's no God spot or, you know, religious part of the brain. Um, and, and I think that makes sense. You know, when people think about uh, religious and spiritual beliefs and experiences, they are very rich, very diverse. They can include our emotional responses, various cognitive processes, uh, experiences, you know, seeing things, hearing things, and so forth. Um, so it really needs to include, uh, you know, certainly not just one part of the brain, but in many ways, many parts of our brain, the emotional centers, the cognitive centers, the sensory areas of our brain, uh, some of the areas of our brain that connect our brain to the body. Uh, and in many ways, to me, um, if there's a spiritual part of ourselves, it is our entire brain. And, um, and that's really the model that we have been working towards developing these network of structures that become involved and activated depending on exactly what one does. And uh, as you mentioned in my introduction, since I'm in the Department of Integrative Medicine here, um, you know, we also recognize the profound link between our brain and our body. So uh, when you feel something spiritual up here, you feel it, you know, all the way through your whole body as well. And so if there's a spiritual part of ourselves, it, it's everything. It's our whole body that becomes part of these experiences. And, you know, then we can get into some of the more details that we see. Um, so, for example, um, when people are doing a practice like meditation or prayer, um, there are a number of very specific changes that go on. For example, uh, the frontal lobes, which are located behind the forehead, they tend to become activated when we meditate or pray because we are concentrating. We're concentrating on God, on a, you know, you mentioned transcendental meditation, on a mantra, right. on an image. Uh, so we see or the even frontal lobes. Breath, if you just or even on your breath. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, so whenever you're focusing on those, your, your frontal lobe activity tends to go up. Now, when you're doing that, you also, uh, you know, when, and, and as you mentioned, when you do your meditation, part of what you're doing is kind of screening out uh, everything else that's coming into your brain. So your sensory areas, in particular, an area called the parietal lobe located in the back of the brain um, that takes that sensory information and helps us to kind of generate our sense of self because you're blocking this information, it actually starts to quiet down. And as that area quiets down, instead of generating a sense of self, you lose your sense of self. And of course, that's a very common descriptor of these kinds of spiritual and mystical experiences that the person loses their sense of self. Uh, they become one with the universe, one with God, one with consciousness. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, these are just two among many of the, the key areas of our brain that we, we see involved when these practices begin to occur and people start to have these very profound experiences. Yeah. Andy, for, for this show and for my own career, you know, I worry about how people's negative emotions affect them and how maybe when you know about 
blending meditation or some other kind of spiritual practice that it deals with that limbic system. Can you talk a little bit about the limbic system and what happens when we're angry? I mean, we've seen so much of this, people getting very, uh, you know, adversarial during our election, a lot of anger, a lot of fear going on because of the pandemic. What's going on in our limbic system and how what are you, what kind of studies are you doing about that for conflict resolution and just being able to not freak out? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. I mean, you know, uh, one of the things that I talk about a lot in the context of neurotheology broadly is that while so many of religious and spiritual experiences are positive, um, they can become negative as well. And so that whole negative side of things is essential for us to understand with the, the ultimate goal, hopefully, of of being able to find ways of turning people, redirecting people into that more positive way of thinking about things. But um, in terms of what does happen, you know, you mentioned the limbic system. So there are several important structures like the amygdala and the hippocampus, which become highly activated when something negative happens to us. Um, and that's, that, you know, on one hand, that's good. I mean, that's, that's yeah. what our brain is designed to do. It's designed to protect us. And if a lion suddenly walked into our uh, into the room with us, um, you know, we would get ready for that fight or flight response to be able to respond. Or a rattlesnake to, in my backyard. <laughs> or a rattlesnake in the backyard. I haven't had that problem, but uh, I haven't had the lion problem either. But um, <laughs> you have but, coyotes, though. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Bears. <laughs> um, so I, I think I have, I have a poodle, but uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, he's not too dangerous. Yeah. But. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, the, the thing with the amygdala, um, you know, it, it turns on w when we see something that is frightening to us, when, uh, when we get angry, when we're frustrated. And on one hand, that can be good. But when it stays on, when it, it persists, then it can lead to all kinds of problems. And, you know, first of all, you know, the way we understand how the brain works in general is that uh, we have a little phrase that neurons that fire together wire together. And right. what that essentially means is that the more you use any particular pattern of neurons, any particular network of neurons, the more that becomes the way your brain operates. So if your focus is on love and compassion, then your brain literally kind of becomes more filled with love and compassion. And if on the other hand, you kind of fill your brain with anger and hatred, then those are the neural connections that stick and you become more and more filled with anger and hatred as time goes on. And so, you know, part of what happens though, is that when you are angry, um, you release certain kinds of neurotransmitters and stress hormones like cortisol that actually prevent the brain from working as well, uh, prevent the brain from making more and more connections. So your, your brain actually becomes less connected. You become more narrowly kind of focused in terms of your ideas and your beliefs. And it really prevents your brain from being able to expand and be able to think and so forth. Um, and that's another piece of this, which is that there, you know, I mentioned the frontal lobes. So the frontal lobes and the limbic system have this kind of balance. And the, uh, the fulcrum of that is a little structure called the anterior cingulate uh, that I know Mark Waldman likes to talk a lot about. And so when your frontal lobes go up, your, your limbic areas go down. And that's why when you, you know, meditation really helps to modulate anxiety and fear and, and these negative emotions by keeping so you don't them become so reactive right and you don't become reactive and that's why when you do get angry your frontal lobes go down and that's why we you know when you, we get angry you know the classic statement is you know well I, I i said something before i thought about it or you know i didn't think about it when i was when i was talking 
Um, or there's and, that, and that saying, speak when you're angry and you'll say the best speech you ever regret. Right, exactly, exactly. So, you know, we, we, we tend not to think about things that well. Right. And, um, and, and, and so the goal of these practices is ultimately to try to balance them out more effectively and be able to use that frontal lobe so that we can, you know, ultimately modulate those emotional responses and keep them uh, at bay so that we function at a better level. And, um, and that's where practices like meditation and prayer come in. Um, but again, you know, even with regard to meditation and prayer, when we are, um, when we're, you know, if you're, if you're meditating or praying about a religious experience that is uh, much more negative and fear invo invoking and so forth, then that still becomes part of how your body and your brain begin to operate. So, so you know, it, 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 you know, we often talk about these kinds of religious practices and rituals as being morally neutral technologies. And in that regard, um, you know, when, uh, if you do a practice like meditation or prayer, it does depend on what you are focused on. And if you are focused on connecting with the world, connecting with other human beings, being loving and compassionate, then that is part of how your whole body and your whole brain responds, but it can go the other way too. And, and that's part of what we're trying to learn about even more as we do our neurotheology research. Yeah. And do you measure like these chemicals that are created, like you were talking about cortisol is when you're under stress and I would imagine adrenaline, right? And epinephrine. And these are, right. the, these are the things that, that are really bad for us if you continue it too long, right? Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. I, mean, and, and I would it, imagine you being an internal medicine guy, you, you see people get heart attacks, right? All sorts of stuff from that. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and the, exactly what you mentioned. I mean, you know, there, there is ultimately the bodily effect. And so when you have anger and hatred, um, you, you know, as you said, your adrenaline goes up, your cortisol levels go up, and that has uh, fairly dramatic effects on the body. And you're uh, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, your immune system function goes down. And again, I mean, you know, if you do this for a very short period of time, dealing with an acute stressor at a moment, right. that's okay. That's, that, that helps your body and your brain adapt and survive. But when you right. do it over long periods of time, it becomes very detrimental. And it is absolutely associated with increased risk of, of heart disease and stroke and cancer and infections and yeah. so forth. Um, yeah. So so that's why we, we we really need to do our best to try to work on getting people away from those negative attitudes and those negative beliefs. Especially now when we're in a pandemic, you know, that if you're doing those negative beliefs, even fear, right? Fear is part of that amygdala that, that I Absolutely. would think that we're trying to keep our, our, our whole, <clears throat> you know, immune system in balance. And then if we're in fear and anger during all this time, it sure isn't great for our immune system, right? Uh, absolutely. And in fact, you know, just the opposite, you know, there was some very interesting work that was done uh, with uh, different kinds of meditation practices. And by doing that, you reduce your cortisol and you reduce your stress hormone. Uh, cortisol is one of the big players in this because, I mean, everybody knows that, you know, you go and you get some hydrocortisone, that's, a, that's cort right. you know, uh, cortisol, yeah. uh, kind of uh, synthetic cortisol. And what does it do? I mean, you put it on something like a rash to reduce your immune system's function. If somebody has an autoimmune disease um, like lupus or, or some type of, you know, other type of, or a thyroiditis or something like that, you might give them steroids because that, you know, again, that's like the cortisol that reduces your immune system. So when your cortisol goes up, your immune system goes down. But when you meditate, your cortisol levels go down and that allows your immune system to go up. And these studies where 
uh, they would give people, for example, like the influenza vaccine, and then they would have half them meditate and half of them not. And the people who meditated had a much better antibody response to the vaccine. So we've literally seen the physiological change in the immune mm -hmm. system as the result of reducing your stress through a practice like meditation or prayer. Right. So, so when we do the, the practices that we, you know, get centered and peaceful and all that stuff, then we're creating other chemicals too, right? Like oxytocin and, and dopamine and all that stuff. What part of your brain sends the signal to create those feel good chemicals? Well, so, so, well, uh, some of them are very uh, central. Uh, you know, a lot of the areas that produce dopamine and serotonin are two big uh, neurotransmitters. And melatonin, they come from, right? And melatonin, yeah. They, they come from the brainstem. Um, but where, what they do is they affect um, uh, central air. There's a big uh, central area called the basal ganglia, which yeah. is very involved in dopamine and the reward system. And that's, the, you know, what makes us feel good with the release of dopamine. Yeah. And then, of course, that all connects up into the cortex. So... Um, you know, it makes us feel good. It makes us think positively and it gets this, you know, gets us. Builds our energized. immune system. <laughs> yep, exactly. Exactly. And of course, again, just the opposite, you know, when uh, people have low levels of serotonin or dopamine, um, their brain doesn't work as well. And, and you can have depression. You can, of course, uh, one of the most common disorders with decreased dopamine or, or uh, disorders like Parkinson's disease, yeah. which happens to be very associated with depression, for example. Um, and then, and then depression itself is associated with decreases in serotonin. But as you said, when we, when people meditate, uh, and we, we've done some of this, uh, early work with trying to look at these different neurotransmitters. In fact, a really interesting study we did a couple of years back, um, sent people through a spiritual retreat program where they went for a week and they, you know, very immersive, a lot of meditation, prayer, uh, contemplation. Most of it was in silence. Um, it was actually based off of the, um, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. Um, wow. So it's actually in the Jesuit uh, tradition. Wow. And we scanned their brain for their dopamine and serotonin levels before and after. And there were profound differences. There were significant differences. And, um, and, what, and they were interesting differences because um, what they basically showed us was is that the brain, the brain became primed, so to speak, or predisposed to having a greater sensitivity, a greater response to the release of dopamine. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, when people think about it, meditation by itself is not a mystical experience, mm -hmm. but by doing meditation, you can ultimately have a mystical experience. And that's kind of what we, we showed with this study is that it, it's not, the, it's not the, med, the meditation is the experience itself, but it kind of gets your brain ready for that kind of an experience. And so when it begins to happen and you have all these releases of dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin, your brain is really receptive to it. So it doesn't just make you feel a little you know, good. It, it, it just, it takes you to a whole other level. And, yeah. and that gets back to the, you know, you mentioned also our book, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. And, and that's where we also start to see, you know, sort of these larger changes going on uh, in the brain and in the limbic system. And, you know, what's interesting about so many things about the brain is that the same parts do a lot of different things. So, you know, the amygdala can become activated when we are in a fear response, but it also becomes activated when we do something positive. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't and, know that. I thought it was your fear, you know, fear, flight, and freeze mechanism. Well, you know, again, you know, one of the things that is a challenge for us in terms of our technology is that, um, when we look at how our brain works, 
uh, you know, when we do a brain scan and we say, well, the amygdala turned on, um, the amygdala has millions of neurons in it. So it's very difficult for us to know exactly which neurons are doing what. Mm-hmm. And, and so some of them turn on and, uh, you know, change uh, in a positive way. And some of them turn on and change in a negative way. That's something. Because I thought I read somewhere that um, when your frontal lobes get bigger from doing in, enlightenment things, that, that your amygdala kind of, not shrink, but it kind of, I don't know if it, at, what does it do? Does it get smaller actually or what? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, over time, you know, when, when we do a lot of our brain scans, we're looking at functional changes in the brain, but, um, right. but there are structural changes as well, especially yeah. over the long haul. And yeah, you know, when people uh, become more, you know, stressed over longer periods of time, there is a, a degeneration um, uh, of some of these structures like the amygdala, for example. And, and in part, I think what happens is that it, that is also part of why, you know, you become even more and more negative and more and more traumatized by these mm-hmm. kinds of states. So, and, and, you know, the, you're also talking about how the brain works. I mean, the amygdala and the hippocampus are part of writing memories into our brain. So mm-hmm. when we have these very, you know, stressful scenarios, I mean, that's part of why people develop things like PTSD because they can't, they can't kick these memories out of our brain. I mean, our brain is supposed to remember negative things so that we avoid them. And again, that's a survival adaptive advantage, but, but when it becomes stuck in it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. When you get too strong or you get stuck in it, then you, you really have trouble breaking out of it. Now, again, you know, the brain is wonderful in the sense that it has this neuroplasticity and it can change and adapt. And, uh, you know, I mentioned the neurons that fire together, wire together, but the other uh, thing that we can take advantage of is the use it or lose it. And, um, and that can work for us or against us. You know, I mean, uh, if you don't, you know, if you don't use your mathematics for too long, you start to forget things. Yeah. But on the other yeah. hand, it and does I help was you fluent for- in Spanish, but I sit there and I go, what is that word? You know, right. I'm not but on the other hand, you know, I mean, it's part of why when we look back on, you know, high school or whatever, and even if it was bad, uh, our brain tends to not remember those negative things. We tend to be able to move past that a lot. And, and we do start, you know, even when you lose a, a loved one, for example, yeah. um, you know, it really is horrible at the beginning. And then a week later, a month later, a year later, you know, you, you, you begin that, to move past it. And, um, yeah. and, and that's, that, that's an adaptive re- response. So. Wow. There's so much about the brain. So, you know, when you got into this, and I, I, I remember reading a little bit that, you know, ever since you're a kid, you were interested in this. So, so what is your dream when you're doing all this research? What would you, I mean, what, what is your legacy? It's so exciting to me. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I am always excited about it. Um, you know, I, I love, uh, you know, doing research that uh, no one has done before. And, uh, you know, without sounding overly grandiose, you know, every time we do a brain scan of some spiritual practice that no one has ever looked at, it's a little like walking on the moon for the first time. I mean, when you study a a new meditation or a prayer, you know, we did a study on speaking in tongues, for example, I mean, you don't know what you're going to see. And, um, and so that's, that, that is part of it. You know, I, uh, to me, uh, you know, being able to bring fields such as integrative medicine and, and neurotheology to the, to the wider public and to, hopefully help them, you know, help us as human beings find ways of, of reducing the amount of stress and, and distress that we have and, and maybe help people to achieve greater spiritual satisfaction, uh, spiritual enlightenment, 
physical and mental health uh, benefits, you know, all of that to me would be wonderful. Um, and, and all of this ultimately, you know, you talk about uh, my interest as a child. I mean, uh, all of this derives from a very basic question, which is um, a, really more of a philosophical one. Um, and that is, how do we know what is real? Um, and, uh, you know, I was, from a young age, I was always very uh, upset, I guess, if, if I'm not sure if that's the right word, but uh, unhappy with the fact that, you know, why do we have all these different religions? Why do we have different political parties? Why do we have different moral perspectives on things? If we're all looking at the world and it's the same world, why didn't we all come away with the same answer? But we don't. And, um, and so, you know, part of my pursuit was, well, let's start by looking at the brain. But I, I realized after a period of time that the brain isn't, isn't everything when it comes to how our perceptions of reality are. And, and we need to think about consciousness and our spiritual selves. And, and you know, maybe it ultimately is the, all, all in the brain, but, but we need to factor in a lot of these other aspects of human life and uh, the spiritual perspectives, the philosophical perspectives, as well as the biological ones. Yes, and and yeah, you, so. would you believe we're out of time? You have to come back because I have <laughs> so. a million questions and, and I, and I want to read the book that I just got, um, Neurotheology, How Science Can Enlighten Us About Spirituality, because I have so much more to ask you about how, you know, because my dream is to get us to a point where we don't get into these crazy conflicts. And so, right. you know, that's why I love to read about what's happening in the amygdala and how to tame that craziness. So um, you're wonderful. And it's so great to have you you on. So just give your website and then it's time to go. Absolutely. So it's just uh, Andrew Newberg, N-E-W-B-E-R-G.com. And people can go and learn about the books and research and all the new things coming down the pike for neurotheology and and anything else we can figure out. (laughs) Yeah. Wonderful books. Well, thank you so much. And we will have you back again. Thanks. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.